All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this Friday. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to continue to introduce myself for every one of these episodes. My name is Shaheen Nagjavani. I'm a PGA Tour coach. And uh, Travis has been so thoughtful to invite me on to host his uh, podcast once a month to talk a lot about instruction. So um, I know there's a lot of newcomers that have come in, obviously, because of the crazy news that have happened this past week, just with the Saudi League and all the tour players speaking out and everything like that. So uh, I just wanted to reintroduce myself for, for all of you newbies out there who have come in and joined. Uh, so this week's episode, we are going to talk a lot about wrist angles. So obviously, there's a wide range of wrist angle mechanics that you see on tour. Uh, we're going to talk about how they work, why they work, what specific players do to make it work. Uh, and I'm going to bring in some fun tour players as examples as I, I go through them. But before we do that, I did put out a call to action last night on my Instagram story, just asking people to send in questions. Uh, I usually do this every week on my Instagram page, but I thought it would be really fun to answer these questions on the pod. So I'm kind of going to go through some interesting ones and we're going to have some fun with it. Okay. So uh, one of the first questions that I got was uh, how do you fix a rounded back at a dress? Now I will say this, there is a lot of old school information out there that people still take uh, very literally in the sense of, you know, there's this old uh, idea that having a very straight back having the rear end sticking out is like the most athletic way to set up to a golf ball. And that just is so far from the truth. If there's one thing that we have seen with players uh, without diving too much into the crazy details of the mechanics is that when you have too straight of a back and you have the rear end sticking out too much at a dress, a lot of times it not only creates issues in how the pelvis can move through the golf swing, Okay, so the type of tilting that the pelvis has when you're seated kind of forward or backwards and so on um, can create a lot of problems if, you're, if your rear end is sticking out too much. And along those same lines, when your back is way too straight, it puts a ton of pressure on the lower, lower end of your back. And as somebody who has a herniated disc in his L5-S1 of his spine, I can promise you that this type of information was a big reason why. I developed those back issues just from playing golf so much that way because people used to tell me that that was the only way to hit a golf ball uh, with athleticism. And that's simply not true. So when I get these questions, like rather than trying to help you fix it, my first answer is why do you need to change a rounded back at a dress? I certainly don't think so. Now, obviously, we want to have our weight distribution properly sorted out. We want to make sure we're ready to shift our pressure through the ground back and forth effectively. But having a rounded back is not going to prevent that from happening. Like, I want to make that very clear, especially if it's done the right way. Obviously, we don't want to be slouching. Keep in mind, slouching is not a sign of athleticism, right? If, like, I have these, like, hunched over shoulders and I'm, like, my weight gets super far into my toes at setup and I'm just not moving or I'm not set up to move my body very well at high speeds, it's a completely different story. But if we are referring very simply to like your back is a little rounded, but you know, you're in an athletic position in the sense of you're ready to move your body at high speeds in different ways. Uh, I have no issues with that whatsoever. Okay. Um, one of the next questions that I got was, could you fix Frankie's short game from barstool golf? So barstool sports. So I've seen a lot of these videos online of him chipping. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I believe they're referring to Frankie Borelli. Um, and we've seen a bunch of videos of like 
you know, tour players trying to help him out. Kevin Kisner, Max Homa, like all kinds of friends of Barstool uh, trying to help this guy. And he seems to just like always blade or shank chip shots and things like that. Here's what I'll say as an answer. If you are a coach who does not believe you are able to help a player, you should not be coaching whatever it is that you are coaching. And it almost sounds ridiculous to say that out loud. And I, I really don't mean this as criticism in any way. Just the actual fact of, you know, if a player came to you, it doesn't matter if it's a 40 handicap, if it's a scratch player, if it's a tour player, it doesn't matter what it is that they're referring to. If you are a specialist in what you do, you always need to have the confidence that you can help anyone who comes in, even if they're struggling with the yips or not. And I say yips with like my fingers doing the quotation symbol because, um, you know, yips always start with a technical problem first that leak into the mental side of it. So um, in my opinion, like, yeah, 100%, I can fix this stuff. I've also only ever seen professional golfers or buddies of his actually attempt to help him. I haven't seen that many videos, if any, of an actual qualified coach trying to help him out. And if they are, I don't know what kind of information they're giving him. I just haven't seen that content yet. So uh for me as a coach like could you could you fix his short cam i mean of course for sure i mean he does a ton of things that i've seen on videos without diving into the details of that he's doing himself a massive disservice in the sense that he's creating a very small margin for error and his odds of hitting poor shots are a lot higher than other people that i've seen who have better short games so first thing you got to do is always remove that big margin for error the average golfer is not skilled enough to play a a, a shot that requires a super fine line of accuracy. If you are that type of person and you're attempting to play that shot, don't get discouraged if you hit it poorly because the odds are the average person is going to struggle with that, let alone somebody who is on the lower end of the skill when it comes to around the greens. So first thing you got to do, increase your margin for error so that even if your technical side isn't actually perfect and you're not bottoming out perfectly at the right spot every single time, you have certain things, certain aspects within your strike and how the soul interacts with the turf and all that to actually give you a better chance of still having a semi-decent result. Meaning even if you don't hit a perfect shot, you're getting it on the green somewhere 10, 15, 20 feet away as opposed to blading it across the green or duffing it right in front of you and it never gets on the green and so on, okay? Uh, so those are my thoughts on, on that specific question. Uh, what is the best way to become an established teaching pro? So this is a great question because there's obviously a lot of different ways in which you can go about it. And I've been very vocal about the fact that the PGA program is not the only way to do it. I am not a PGA member. Um, I never have pretended to become a PGA member. And I've been very vocal about the fact that I'm not one. I started, uh, I actually played soccer, so European football when I was younger. And I used to play for um, my city of Montreal. I played for the province of Quebec, and I was a highly touted player. At least I, I thought I was very skilled at the time. Uh, and then I dealt with a lot of injuries that didn't prevent me from going forward. And at the end of the day, I don't think I was ever good enough, to be honest, to make it on like a national or professional side. Um, and so what ended up happening was I took an, uh, an affection to golf. I mean, my father used to play when I was a kid, so I used to go with him. I was never really a good player. I mean, I've, I, there's an article somewhere out there that I've actually said uh, the first time I ever even broke 100, I believe I was maybe 18 or 19 or something like that. Like I was not some crazy athletic high school kid who played golf. And so um, what I did was I found a job at a golf course where um, 
I would help them with their junior camps and I was helping them just doing maintenance around the course. And in exchange, what they would allow me to do is teach um, a small group of players, even though I didn't have any crazy certifications at the bare minimum, if I gave them 10 or 15 hours for free in the pro shop every week. And like many other people, that's how I started. And this is obviously like, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years ago at this point, it's a long time ago, but um, that's how I got my start. And what happened was over that period, they used to request that you used to have certifications or a paper of some sort. So they want to see your credentials. And obviously uh, the PGA program is very expensive and I didn't believe it was necessary for me to become a coach at some point. I didn't have aspirations to become a, a coach of tour players. I mean, at the time I just wanted to teach the game of golf. And so I went out and got something called the CGTF which is uh, literally a weekend course, uh, part of the Canadian Golf Teaching Federation, which basically tells you that you know the basics and you have gone through their two, three-day weekend course to give you enough insight to teaching a beginner. And that's really what it was. It's not a high-end coaching model or anything like that. It is very strictly uh, just to give you the basics so that when you put yourself in front of a, a player, uh, that you don't like freak out and have no idea where to go with it. It just gave you some small foundations to deal with. And obviously at the same time, similar to the PGA, but not as rigorous, you need to play up to a certain level and there's a playing exam. So I went through that process. And when that, um, when I went through that about again, like 10 years ago or something like that, then I started teaching with that document so that if ever anybody asked like, Hey, so what are your credentials? Well, I'm a part of the Canadian golf teaching federation or whatever. Um, so I started that way and then I built my way up from those junior camps into teaching uh, more consistently on the driving range. And then it started to get really busy. Then it got to 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And then down the road, I said, why don't I start promoting myself on social media? Because I live in a city and I think this was one of the best things for me. Like I'm kind of lucky where I live in a city where golf is not the most popular sport, but on top of that, I live in a city where you can only really play golf for five to seven months out of the year, depending on how the seasons kind of fluctuate. Obviously, there's ebbs and flows to when it first starts snowing versus when the snow melts. Somewhere between five and seven months out of the year is when I get to teach. So I told myself, well, there's no way I can sustain a living only teaching for half the year unless I want to find a secondary job. I did have one at the time. I decided to drop it because I said I want to put all my eggs in one basket because I truly believe if you want to be successful at something, you have to give it 100%. And for me to actually, um, you know, be successful in this, I couldn't have a second job. I just couldn't be taking time away every week and distracting my mind with other things, even if it was bringing me some extra income. And so uh, I decided I'm going to put all my eggs in golf. And the only way for me to be successful is I have to find other ways to make uh, a, re a source of revenue within golf without actually... Uh, teaching in person because that wasn't necessarily something that was an option you know the reality is in, in Montreal here where I live I would say 75% of golfers probably even, maybe even closer to 80% of golfers put their clubs away in the garage and they collect dust and they don't see them until the spring or what we've learned every year is that right around like mid-January to early February everyone starts freaking out because their game is in shambles because they haven't hit a ball for four months they put their clubs away let's say in november and then uh they contact me uh freaking out that they want to start taking lessons again and obviously they try to get themselves ready for when the season actually opens up which is usually around mid to late may in montreal and then you can play from may all the way through uh october november so you have those like six months and so um 
I told myself I need to make an extra source of revenue. I cannot rely on students in Montreal to do that because most of them put the clubs away. So my best option in that situation was to uh, start promoting myself on social media more so that I can become more successful, maybe helping other people elsewhere. And I started giving online lessons before I was on Skillist. It's very known for people who know me that I'm, um, that I'm on Sk the Skillist app. That's where I do my online lessons. I've given at this point almost 9,000 of them in the last five years. I do a lot of lessons through Skillist. But when I first started, I didn't have that as an option. They didn't contact me. I didn't know they existed as a platform. And so um, I was literally responding to people via email, sending back a clip and uploading it to a private link on YouTube so just for the player and whatever. And I started to get more known because of social media. And then I would use the content from the lessons that I was giving people and I would take little clips or snippets of it or the upgrades of the players that I was working with. And I would put it on my social media channel and then it eventually got bigger and bigger. So like, this is a really long answer, but I just want to give people some insight into how I went about it and why I went about it that way. It's not that I looked at the PGA program and said, this is an awful decision. I, I, I wasn't thinking that whatsoever. I still, to this day, don't really know what they teach in the PGA program. I've never really looked up into it. What I would say is I was somebody who lived in an area where you cannot rely on people to come take lessons with you in person. And I found online lessons was the next best option for me. There wasn't a lot of online coaches at the time, which is why I got so popular so fast. I was one of the first ones to do it. And obviously, I, I would argue I'm one of the ones who does the most online lessons internationally every year. I mean, I think that goes without saying at this point. And so best way to become an established teaching pro is to promote yourself on the internet, to be honest. Even if you're not somebody who has the credentials yet or you haven't gone through some crazy program, it does not matter I have tons of friends who teach tour players, some of which te teach uh, professional golfers who are in the top 10 of the world ranking, close friends of mine, who are not PGA members. You know, being a PGA member is good, and I'm sure it has its benefits. And certainly for net networking reasons, I think it's very advantageous to have it. It's not the only way to be successful. And if you're somebody who lives in an area like me where golf is not the priority or people put their clubs away or don't take it serious, Start offering online lessons, but in order for you to get the clients for online lessons, start promoting yourself on the internet. Start by talking about things that you are very comfortable with on the internet. I always tell these coaches that I'm mentoring that, you know, don't post a topic that you're not going to be able to defend if somebody comes at you with a bunch of follow-up questions. Start by posting the topics that you are much more confident in from A to Z. And if people come back with some sort of question or debate or they're trying to troll you or whatever the case may be, you have the ability to actually answer their questions with confidence and confidence and communication is a massive part of this business. If you are saying a lot of what ifs and ends or buts and you don't sound very positive and there's a lot of like this, maybe like, well, you're not going to sound very confident. People are not going to take you seriously. So becoming a good coach means becoming a good communicator and understanding the information. If you do those two things really well and you start promoting yourself on the internet, then there's no reason you can't be successful no matter what credentials you have. And I truly believe that. We hired a new coach at, a, at my academy here in Montreal, and this person has no uh, credentials of any kind. He's just somebody who was a student of mine who took an affection to the golf swing, learned a lot about the mechanics, and we have spoken back and forth at length about swing mechanics. And I truly believe he's better than most coaches. Now, granted, he doesn't have the communication skills yet. He's on the younger side. And obviously, as somebody who's on the younger side, he doesn't necessarily uh, have that skill set um, fully done yet. But at the same time, he's going to get that with experience working with beginners where the information is more valuable. With beginners, it's all about the information. 
when it comes to better players, the communication back and forth is super important. When it's with beginners, you know, you're repeating yourself a lot. Um, obviously, there's a lot of really big macro issues that players typically deal with, the open face, the steeper shaft pattern, and all of that. In situations like that, you know, the communication isn't necessarily uh, the main priority. It's just getting the right information to the player to get better. And I'm not saying that communication is not important in that situation. I'm saying it's not the number one priority. When you're dealing with better players, things are happening on a more micro scale. The communication becomes super important to make sure that they're working on the right things. Okay. Uh, so I hope that answers your question. So I can go on forever about these Q&As. I mean, I have like another 20, 30, 40 questions here written down. But uh, in reality, we wanted to do this episode to talk about wrist angles. So I hope that gives some people some insight into how I became a coach and maybe a different alternative or a different way to think about becoming a coach yourself. Okay. So let's talk wrist angles. There are two, um, obviously, movements you can have within the golf swing you can have the lead wrist working towards extension okay so just to even break this down even further whenever we refer to the lead wrist we are referring to the wrist on the lead side of our body right-handed golfers rotate to your left because we are rotating towards our left side in the downswing the left side is leading our body through the ball and therefore our lead wrist would be the wrist angle on the lead side. That's our left hand for right-handed golfers, the one that's wearing the glove. For right-handed golfers, that would be, uh, sorry, for left-handed golfers, that would be your right hand. Again, the one that's wearing the glove, okay? So you can have the lead wrist working towards extension, which basically means it's the knuckles of the hand are hinging above the forearm like that, okay? So I'm showing this visually on video as well at the same time. Or you can have the lead wrist working towards flexion. And flexion just means the opposite. It means you're curl curling the knuckles under the forearm, right? You are bowing the wrist is another way to say it, as opposed to cupping the wrist, which is that extension move I spoke about. Well, they play a massive role in the club face angle, but at the same time, they play a massive role in other areas. And these are things that are not commonly spoken about on the internet. Everybody or I would argue most coaches and people on the internet that have followed golf closely over the last five years, understand that flexion and extension are two movements that will influence the club face, whether it's more open or more closed. So the more you work the wrist towards extension, which means the knuckles of the hand are hinging above the forearm, the more you are going to open the face. The more you work this wrist towards flexion, meaning you're going to curl the knuckles of the hand under the forearm, the more you're going to close the club face. And that stands true, obviously, depending on when it's taking place in the golf swing. I will say that. Now, that is not the only thing that affects it. The type of grip you have is not only going to also influence the club face, it's also going to influence how, that, how you are able to bend your wrists in certain ways. Because when we grip the club... What people don't realize, it's not just about like a comfort thing, right? Everybody knows like, okay, stronger grip means club face is going to be more closed. Weaker grip means club face is going to be more open. Sure. But at the same time, you're presetting the wrist in a very different position when you are dealing with a more closed club face versus a more open one, or rather a stronger grip versus a weaker one, which will directly affect the club face. So... What kind of examples do we have on tour of golfers who do this? And then I'll even relate this later on to the shaft movement because people always look at the club face. And like I started this whole conversation, 
it's really easy for us to talk just about the club face and how it relates to the wrist angles, but the wrist angles will also play a massive role in the shaft movement. So let's look at a couple of different examples of players on tour. The one that I would prefer to see for a lot of golfers is the Sung JM pattern. And I'm not talking about the shaft movement here. Keep in mind, when I'm mentioning tour players, I'm specifically relating this right now to wrist angles, okay? This is the number one thing. So isolate the wrist angles and how they move when I mention these tour players. If you're going to go on YouTube afterwards and search to see like what we're talking about. Sung J M is somebody who, when he takes the club back, has a lot of extension on his lead wrist, right? He's got a relatively neutral grip, if I'm not mistaken. He has a lot of extension on the lead wrist. The face angle gets very open up near the top of the backswing. So the toe side of the club head hangs down towards the ground a lot, which means at the top of the backswing, which means that the face angle is looking open. And then when he transitions, his lead wrist goes from a lot of extension and it works into flexion as he's working into the downswing. Now, why do I like this pattern for a lot of golfers? Well, two reasons. Number one, because his wrist is working into a direction that is going to strengthen the club face. I believe this is very important. The average golfer slices the golf ball. This is just the reality of it. Well, what is going to influence a slice? A shaft angle that's coming down too steep or too over the top, the modern day look of it, right? And they combine that with a club face angle that gets very open. Well, when you have the lead wrist working from a more cupped position at the top of the swing to a more flexed position in transition, you are guaranteeing that the club face is closing as you're starting down because you're working the wrist into a direction where the face angle is getting more and more shut as it's working towards flexion, right? And so this is a good thing because it's going to guarantee that the face angle is not going to be open. And the second thing, which if we want to relate this to the shaft movement right away, what you'll see with a lot of golfers is when this lead wrist moves from a more cuffed position to one that is more bowed into the downswing, they are applying a certain force to the handle of the club when they bow the wrist. And that force that they apply to the club helps them shallow the club out. So as the average golfer slices the ball, having the lead wrist work into flexion in the downswing has two benefits, not one. It has the first benefit of getting the club face into a stronger position in the downswing, right? Versus the golfer uh, who keeps the wrist cup the whole time and keeps it steeper. So uh, the club face gets more closed, but also, right? And I'm, I might be mixing my words here because there's a lot of technical stuff involved. So I apologize. But also when this lead wrist works into flexion, the shaft gets flatter. So shaft get, angle gets into a better spot. They're not as over the top anymore. And the club face gets more closed. There's two benefits to doing that movement in transition. The specific important element here is that the golfer is doing it in transition. Right? Why do I say this? Because... Everybody loves to obsess about the takeaway and the backswing, right? And I do believe they're very important. I make backswing changes to players all the time. But if you are going to be someone who really flexes or bows that wrist out in the backswing because you've seen the whole John Rom, Colin Morikawa, DJ vibe going on, and we're going to talk about those players too. Well, if you are somebody who's going to really bow the wrist in the backswing, sometimes you do it so much, it creates so much pressure on the tendon in the inside of the forearm 
that golfers naturally are going to want to alleviate that pressure. What happens when we want to alleviate that pressure? Well, if I over bow the wrist in the backswing and it's too hard to retain it, now my wrist is actually going to work into extension in the downswing, meaning the direction that the wrist angle is going now is actually towards a more cupped position, which is opening the club face and is bringing the club on a steeper plane. And now it's not going to guarantee that the club plane is going to be steep because there's a lot of things that influence the uh, angle of the shaft and the downswing. The wrist angles are simply one of them. But when you have a lot of flexion at the top, you better retain that flexion coming down. If you're somebody who gets into a ton of extension uh, flexion at the top of the swing and then it, you lose it and you lose that pressure and the wrist works towards more of a cupped position, your face angle is going to open. And in most cases, I'll say, the shaft angle is going to suffer from it as well. That is not ideal. So I'm okay with golfers bowing the wrist in the backswing. Like, keep in mind, I'm not saying not to do it. My point is if you are going to do it, don't lose it in the, in the transition to the downswing. That's very, very important. Because if you're going to be one of those players who's going to overdo something on the way back, this crazy bowed look, because you've seen all those golfers that I mentioned, but then you lose it coming down, which is something they don't do. They don't lose it coming down, right? Most of them. Well, if you lose it, you're going to suffer. If you get the wrist into a bow spot at the top and you keep it there coming down, that's fine. That's not a problem. So let's look into some examples relating around the flexion in the backswing first. So who's the golfer that does it poorly? And when I say poorly, I don't mean they hit bad shots. I mean they're a terrible example to copy as a model for the average golfer. That would be Will Zalatoris. Will Zalatoris is one of the best golfers on the planet. If there's anything he's proven in the last year or two is that he deserves to be exactly where he is in the world rankings because he's an elite ball striker. But Will Zalatoris is an outlier. And why is he an outlier? Because he does things with his wrist mechanics that the average golfer simply will never have the skill to repeat on a daily basis. Keep in mind, not only is Will's skill on a level that's far beyond anything the average person can imagine when it comes to the golf swing, but Will Zalatoris also plays a lot of golf, hits a lot of balls, right? He's around the sport. He's constantly working on mechanics. And when I say working on mechanics, I just mean like he's constantly hitting golf balls. Hitting golf balls is a form of working on mechanics. You're giving yourself that repetition to be comfortable with it, right? You're increasing your skill in that situation. If you are somebody who is going to work the wrist into flexion like Will, and if you look at Will by left arm parallel in the backswing, his wrist is a lot flatter. And then as he gets near the top and he transitions, his wrist works into extension on his glove hand. That move opens his face. Now, granted, it doesn't penalize his shaft movement because there are other things that he does in the golf swing to offset that. But most golfers, you would also see a, 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 a compromise where the shaft movement is also getting, like, it's also getting penalized from that. And so he gets away with it. The average golfer would not be able to do that. They just simply wouldn't, okay? So if we're up to me, Everybody loves obsessing about the backswing, but I would rather you have more extension to the lead wrist in the backswing and then have it work towards flexion coming down versus the inverse, where the lead wrist is more bowed in the backswing, more flexion, and then you lose it coming down. That opens the face and creates that ripple effect of problems that we're talking about. Okay, so as a number one thing to understand here, I'm not saying that those are the only two ways to go about it. I'm saying that if you're going to have a change of wrist angles in transition, I would prefer that your lead wrist is working towards a more flat 
a more bowed position, not a more cupped position where the face angle is going to open and it's going to create very similar problems that the masses are already dealing with. It's not ideal. Uh, so relating to those two players, if you had a model to copy more, it would be more of Sungjae Im's wrist angle mechanics. Now, it is possible to hit very good shots having the lead wrist cupped at the top and also keeping the lead wrist cupped in transition, meaning the lead wrist actually does not even work towards flexion. It stays in that cup spot the whole way through. Who would be a good example of a player who does this really well and why does it work? I'll tell you. The answer for me is Brendan Steele. Brendan Steele is someone who has a very strong grip, right? When you have a very strong grip, number one, you're going to preset your lead wrist into a cupped position at setup a lot more than the weaker grip. So already, you're likely to have a more cupped wrist angle regardless as soon as your grip gets strong, okay? But then number two, because the grip is on the stronger side, the grip is what you are using to guarantee that the club face will be more closed, right? So you're not relying on wrist angle mechanics to close your club fix anymore. Your grip is doing that for you. In that situation, it is no longer as necessary for a player to have to bow the wrist to close the club face. The stronger grip is what's doing it, so you can keep your lead wrist more cupped. So in that situation, you look at Brendan Steele. He's a super strong grip. Lead wrist is very cupped at the top. Lead wrist stays cupped in transition. Now, we're not again, we're not relating this to his club movement at all. We're specifically isolating how the wrist angle and the grip work together for the club face. You can get away with keeping your wrist cupped the whole time so long as your grip is on the stronger side. This is a matchup that typically works pretty good. It's not super problematic. Well, let's look at somebody who does the opposite matchup. What would be the opposite matchup of a strong grip with a cupped wrist? Well, it would be a weaker grip with a bowed wrist, right? So let's look at the John Rom Colin Morikawa. Now you're seeing a golfer who is bowed in the backswing, bowed at the top, retains the bowing in transition, and all the way through impact. Obviously, the wrist angles change as they release the club, but let's say through the backswing at the top and in transition, there's a lot of bowing on the lead wrist, okay? Why does that work for that player? Well, because when you saw Brendan Steele, he had a wrist angle that would theoretically create problems, but he was offsetting his wrist angle by holding the grip stronger. So the stronger grip closed the club face, so his wrist angles didn't have to do it for him. That's one way to think about it, okay? When you look at John Rahm and Colin Morikawa, you see the opposite matchup. Because their grip is a lot weaker, their grip is not closing the club face for them anymore. In fact, it's actually trying to open it. The weaker your grip is, the more likely you're going to suffer from a more open club face. So because they have a grip type, a grip style, that is more likely to leave their face angle open, they have to rely on a lot of bowing to the wrist to close the club face. Meaning... You take Colin Morikawa, you take John Rahm, you take these weaker grip players who have a lot of bowing. If you were to get rid of some of the flexion they had to their lead wrist, every single shot they would hit would likely go 100 yards right of their target as right-handed golfers. It would be massive blocks. But they have the wrist angle mechanics 
to support the grip type. Just like Brendan Steele did. Brendan Steele's matchup was very different. He had the stronger grip that was supporting his club face, so his wrist angles didn't need to do it for him. Colin Morikawa and John Rahm don't have the grip type to support the club face, so they need the wrist angles to do it. This is the fun definition of matchups, is finding a combination of two variables in the golf swing and seeing how they work together. There's a lot of ways to go about it. For me, as somebody who typically deals with a lot of good and bad players, there's a lot of bad players out there who can't make solid contact on the ball or can't get the ball going towards their target because they suffer from these massive slices. Those massive slices are a lot of times, or I would argue the majority of the time, because of poor face control. Poor face control means a poor combination between the wrist angle mechanics and the grip type. This is one way to look at it. Okay, so I hope these make sense. These are very different types of matchups that work, but I just want you to kind of think about them that way as opposed to thinking, oh, bowed wrists are always good, extended wrists are always bad. Well, no, that is certainly not the case. It will fully depend on other areas like the grip type is one major one. Now, let's look at the ultimate neutral position, and then we're going to start talking about some funky examples. The ultimate neutral position it would be like a Tiger Woods. If you ever look at Tiger's... Um, golf swing and specifically his wrist angle mechanics and his grip type tiger is somebody who for the most part has a relatively neutral grip okay so tiger doesn't have the strongest grip tiger certainly doesn't have the weakest grip he's kind of somewhere in the middle well if you are somebody who has a grip type that's not on the stronger side or on the weaker side you do not have a grip type that is trying to open or close your club face meaning you do not need to have a wrist type that opens or closes your club face. John Rahm, Colin Morikawa, weaker grip, trying to open the face, more flexion, trying to close the face. The two offset each other, and it works as a good blend. Right? Brendan Steele, you have super strong grip trying to shut the face. You have extended wrist trying to open the face. The two offset each other. Again, it works. A very different type of matchup. When you look at Tiger, his grip type isn't trying to open or close the club face. Therefore, by default, any amount of flexion on his wrist would shut the face. Any amount of extension on his wrist would open the face. So what does Tiger need to keep the face angle square? And keep in mind, it doesn't mean you need to have a, a perfectly square club face to play good golf. I'm just, this is how I'm trying to give you guys just a mental image of it, okay? If you are going to have some amount of flexion and the face is going to be closed, or you're going to have some amount of extension and the face is going to be open, because your grip type is like right around neutral, well, then the wrist mechanics that you would need to keep the club face square is also right around neutral. What is a neutral wrist? Well, it's basically meaning you're not towards flexion or you're not towards extension, meaning your wrist angle is flat. Any amount of flexion, the face closes. Any amount of extension, the face opens right around a flat wrist. If you look at Tiger, his wrist mechanics are pretty flat. He doesn't have bowing on his lead wrist. Um, certainly not much, if any, doesn't have any extension on his lead wrist. Again, certainly not much, if any, um, I have not seen his data, but just from seeing enough of his golf swing over the last 10 years, visually on every possible camera angle, I, this is what we're coming to the conclusion of, right? So he's pretty neutral in wrist mechanics, pretty neutral in grip type. And obviously the, the two again, offset each other and keep his face angle square. And that's like the ultimate neutral position. I know a lot of people strive for that. It's really not that necessary though. So what would be the funky option? And I'll leave you just with one of them. 
because we can talk about this race angle mechanics for hours, but I certainly also don't want to overwhelm people with swing thoughts when they're going out to the range. Cause I know that many of you will take all of this information and just kind of run with it and try to try all kinds of different things out. Well, one example would be a guy like DJ. Everybody relates DJ's golf swing to the fact that his lead wrist is super bowed and it is, but he is completely different from Morikawa and Rom. Why is he different? Because he is somebody who has a much stronger grip type, right? His grip type is definitely stronger than John's. It's definitely stronger than Collins. So what happens when you have one element of your golf swing, which is the grip type, which is trying to close the club face because it's on the stronger side, and you have a second element of your golf swing, which is the wrist flexion, which is also trying to close the club face. So in Colin and Rom's case and Brennan Steele's case, you had these patterns where, you know, you have one area that's trying to open the face, one area that's trying to close the face, and they work together. And in Tiger's case, like smack down the middle. With DJ, you have one area that's trying to close the club face and a second area that's also trying to close the club face. It's like saying a golfer who would have had a weak grip with a lot of lead wrist extension. That matchup usually doesn't work because now you would have two areas that would be opening the club face. DJ is on the other end of that spectrum. He has two elements, the grip type and the wrist angles, that are trying to close his club face. So why doesn't he, as a shut club face player, hit massive snap hooks on every shot he hits? Well, I'll tell you why. DJ has a combination of two things in his golf swing that prevent him from hitting snap hooks. Number one, he has a lot of shaft lean at the bottom of the swing. Why does that change anything? Because the more shaft lean you deliver, all else equal, right? All else equal. The more you lean the handle forward and deliver shaft lean, the more you are opening the club face at the bottom of the swing. So if I just stand there, stand there with a square club face and I lean the handle forward, as this handle of this club leans forward, the face angle opens, okay? And so in order for a player to have a lot of shaft lean and not hit massive blocks, they need to have the club face somewhat shut first. You take a guy like DJ, the face angle is closed. You lean the handle forward. Now the face angle looks square. See that? This is the visual I'm trying to give people, right? That's just kind of the mental image I want you to think about. So one of the massive elements of DJ's golf swing that helps him and prevents him from hitting these massive snap hooks is the amount of shaft lean he has at the bottom. Now, to follow up on that, the only reason he can even afford to be doing that is because he's got a ton of speed. Keep in mind, shaft lean creates more compression it de-lofts the face, and it lowers the spin rate, okay? That's what compression is. If you are somebody who's swinging very slow through the ball and you're not getting enough loft on the ball, that ball is going to die out of the sky. If you have a lot of speed, having a lot of speed increases the spin rate, which kicks the ball up in the air and keeps it in the air. So DJ gets away with that pattern of that strong grip and that bowed wrist and that shaft lean because of the amount of speed he has. That combination works fine. If you took DJ's entire golf swing and you literally kept the same amount of shaft lean at the bottom, but you cut his speed in half, his balls would die out of the sky. They would never go anywhere. It would be really hard for him to play good golf. So this is the reason why he's such a skilled player is he can get away with that pattern. Now, keep in mind, 
too much shuffling at some point is also no good. And DJ is not on the extreme of that, but he does have, an, we'll, we'll call it enough shuffling to support the pattern. Okay. So it's not like DJ is out there delivering 20 degrees of shuffling at the bottom. I don't want people to have some crazy unrealistic idea of it, but he has an, enough shuffling at the bottom to make it work. Okay. So I hope that uh, makes sense. Now, what else does DJ do in his golf swing to prevent him from hitting snap hooks? Well, his forearms. And we're not going to get into this on this conversation. I want to talk about forearms on, on our next instructional call because I think it would be a great conversation to lead into. But the way in which we change our forearm mechanics, both in the backswing and in the downswing, not only influence the, the shaft movement in a lot of ways. Obviously, you think of forearms. The first thing people associate it to is rolling the forearms open in the takeaway. Club head gets way inside and behind the body. Well, that's not the only way to think about forearms. Forearms also influences the face angle. So the way in which DJ transitions with his forearms takes a shut club face and prevents it from being as shut as it once was, even though his grip is stronger, even though he's got a lot of flexion. I want to make that very clear. Okay, so for a guy like DJ, it's not as simple as bow your wrist, grip it strong, and then just swing and you're going to hit it straight. I mean, that is certainly not the case. He's got a lot of rotation of his body, so the hands don't flip over too fast. The rotation helps him get a lot of shaffling at the bottom, which helps him not turn the club face over too fast. He's got a lot of speed to support the amount of shaffling he has at the bottom. And then on top of that, he's got some forearm rotation and transition that helps him shallow the club, but also helps prevent that face angle from being as shut as it looked at the top of the swing. It's a very big combination of variables that makes his swing work. So for me... What I always suggest for people is try to keep the club face close to square. It doesn't mean it needs to be square. I would prefer it for the masses to have a club face be more shut as opposed to more open just because the average golfer tends to slice the ball and we're trying to get better face angle conditions. So if I had a choice for the everyday golfer, try to work the face angle more towards a shut position as opposed to more towards an open position. When it comes to tour players and better players, in general, it's a very different conversation. It's more micro changes you're making with them so that they don't necessarily need to rely on having the face angle be super shut to hit good shots. The everyday golfer who doesn't have time to practice and all that, try to get the club face in a stronger spot. Put it that way, okay? So think about wrist angle mechanics. Think about the grip. Think about how they work together. And if you had a choice, take Sanjay Im's pattern of wrist mechanics over Will Zalatoris, lead wrist more cupped at the top and then working into flexion and transition as opposed to lead wrist more bowed at the top and working towards a cupped position in the downswing. That's usually no good. That's a big no-no for the everyday golfer, okay? And if you're looking at wrist angle matchups, look at Brendan Steele for one extreme. Look at John Rom for the other extreme. They're both equally viable, but for very different reasons, okay? So I hope this conversation helps just get people thinking about the golf swing and relating it to some tour players, as specifically as it relates to wrist angle mechanics. Uh, and the next call, we're going to jump into some fun forearm rotation talk because I'll provide some really cool examples of players uh, on tour and how they use their forearms to their advantage, okay? I hope everybody has a great weekend. And uh, if you have any questions, you can always hit me up on my Instagram channel. You can kind of see it here at the bottom if you're watching the video. It's Shkeen Golf, S-H-K-E-N-S-H-K-E-E-N Golf, Shkeen Golf, okay? Shkeen is just my nickname that was given to me years ago, and I just kind of kept it. Um, and yeah, happy to answer any questions that everybody has. All right. So, uh, get grinding and I uh, hope you guys all lower your handicaps.